is the is it back? Like after 2018, <laughs> the crypto winter, based on your experience, enthusiasm, are people ready to go at it again? Is it real? Well, what I think might be happening is an anticipation of a coming supply shock in 2020. <clears throat> so what we're looking ahead to is a halvening event. The way that new Bitcoin is introduced to the market is through a process called mining. And the mining reward decreases by half every few years. And so in 2020, we'll have much less of a, a daily supply of Bitcoin than we do now. We'll have half less. And so while we're looking ahead to the halvening event in the supply shock, we're also seeing a greater demand for Bitcoin and new on-ramps from more familiar and conventional sources. So there's an anticipation that there'll be a broader group of consumers that have access and appetite for Bitcoin. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Pierre Richard, joined with Michael Goldstein. Michael, how are you? Doing well. And today we have a very special guest, Preston Pish. Preston, how are you? Doing great. Great to be here, guys. I knew that the Bitcoin bull market had arrived when I started seeing Preston tweeting about Bitcoin again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm so, just, I'm an opportunist, you know? Someone, someone checked the mayor multiple. Things are about to happen. That's right. Yeah, I remember seeing a tweet from you, Preston, that was like, uh, maybe it was November or December of last year uh, when you said that, hey, this is probably a good time to start getting interested in Bitcoin again, um, which I think called the bottom pretty perfectly. And and you had called the top pretty perfectly uh, in, in 2017. So I was, I was very impressed. Well, I, I would like to say that there's like a lot of thought and analysis that kind of goes into uh, those two particular calls. But uh, I mean, really, it's it's me looking at the mayor multiple, just kind of trusting the math and uh, really just kind of looking around at the other people that are trading the market. And whenever you start seeing things on the Wall Street Journal where it says Bitcoin's dead, mayor multiples at like 0.48. It was it for me. It was just like okay, so this is about the change, uh, you know. So you're right. So back around like Christmas time frame, um, you know, and, and Trace is tweeting it out too, like, hey, this is a good time to buy Bitcoin when everybody is selling it and capitulating. Like, let's buy. And but it, it takes a lot to 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 control your emotions so that you don't just go with the herd, right? Because you are essentially going against conventional wisdom and making a decision for yourself and that takes a a level of detachment and like cold-bloodedness yeah no i i would tell you the uh the call in 2017 in december was very very difficult um and i i'll i mean i'll straight up tell you i bought in, in 2015 when it was around 220 and then I sold, I put in a limit order at 18,000 and it executed. And I was like, holy crap, that just executed. And it was on the first one when, I mean, it shot up a couple thousand, like within an hour. Uh, and so the, the order executed and I walked down and looked at my wife and I said, wow. So, uh, I know I've been talking a lot about Bitcoin lately, but, uh, 
maybe I won't be for like the next year. <laughs> she, is, <laughs> she looked at me and she was like, what just happened? I said, because I mean, she, I, I don't really tell her too much. I'm pretty, you know, just, she just, she just trusts me. And, um, I said, yeah, I put in a, an order for the, to sell because I think it's getting, you know, a little too high and it executed the order. And she goes, Oh, okay. <laughs> and that was it. Like that was the end of the conversation, but it was all really kind of based on the mayor multiple at that moment. It, it was hitting four or the price that I had put in was, I knew was going to take it to a four. I kind of suspected that it wasn't going to go as high as it had in the past, which, you know, if you look at the chart, it goes, I want to say it goes as high as like an eight in, in some of the previous bull markets. But my, my idea, which I had no idea was was right or wrong at the time was that you had way less people participating in that market. And I believed that you'd have a lot more market psychology that would drive it to levels that were um, much more fear of missing out than you would as you had more participants in the 2017 bull market. And um, luckily um, I was, I was right. Okay. But I, it didn't feel like I was right whenever it happened and where it really felt wrong was the price came back down right so the sale came in and then like the next couple days i was feeling like a total champion right because it came down to like 15 or something like that and then it's it surged back up just i want to say a week later up to 20,000 i mean kissed 20,000 and when it kissed 20,000 i was just looking at the account and i was saying Oh my God, you cannot be serious right now. Right? Like that was, that's how I felt. Luckily, luckily, my capital gains were so massive that it completely prevented me from participating. Cause I was, I was like, okay, you got to sit based on these previous spikes on the mayor multiple. When it goes crazy like this, if you sit on your hands for 30 days, you're going to see that it was probably a wise decision. And so I did. I, I, I obviously did not participate. I just wait. I sat there and sure enough, it started coming down. And then it was very clear that we were in a bear market. And so all I did is I looked at previous bear markets, how long they typically lasted. We're dealing with an algorithm, right? We're dealing with something that, in my opinion, is systematically chewing away fiat currency. Like if you could just imagine what this thing would look like if it was a tangible thing. It'd be like this monster that's just like systematically clawing away with its, with these like arms. And it's every time the arm reaches out, it pulls in more and more fiat and it's just doing it systematically. Right? Like that's how I, how I envision this. And so when I was looking at how it was performing in the past, it has to go through some, somehow through the mathematics of how this protocol is executing itself. It has to go through this cycle. And I'll tell you what's fascinating to me is when you look at the, the block reward halving. Um, and so plan B has done, I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, the dude, the dude needs to be put in for some type of like scholarly award for the, <laughs> the document that he just published. But when he, when he published that and I looked at it, I was like, yep, this makes total sense, right? When you go and you plot I have like a little charting tool that I can plot the, the range of days between market tops. And if you go from 
the market talk, the the bull market top before the 2017, which was you know the 2014 timeframe, and you plot that out, and you and you literally count the days. It is almost four years, literally to the day, um, between both peaks. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. I think it just reaffirms this idea that you have something that is very systematic, that is algorithm-based, that's stepping into a very emotional, human, psychology-based system, and it is just executing it. It is, it is systematically just absolutely destroying fiat currency, as far as I'm concerned. You know, a couple... I guess it was, it was a couple months ago now. They uh, there was a whole news story about uh, the first picture of like a black hole, but clearly those people hadn't looked at a Bitcoin graph before. We've been looking at black holes for uh, quite a while now. You know, it, it's it, it's interesting, and um, when you study how currencies fail, for the people that are experiencing it firsthand inside of that domestic country it feels like the value of that currency is going up and it's getting more powerful and it's it's getting more uh like relative to everything else but then it gets to a point where it has literally like a systematic failure where it can't be like the amount of currency fiat that needs to be pumped into it it gets to a point where it's unsustainable and it has like this um i know how it how I would graph it where it's kind of going parabolic and then it has a straight line down. Uh, you're, I'm, I'm going to sound like a mathematical idiot because I can't remember which function does that, but you, everyone listening to this knows what I'm talking about and they're probably rolling their eyes, especially the math people. But that's, that's how currency fails is it goes, it goes in that shape and then it's like, Oh, hold on. This isn't gaining. This is, this is going to zero. This is, this is failing. <laughs> So yeah, Mises called this the crack up boom. Yes. Uh, exactly. which is really it's 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 kind of a um a, a paradox or a um what is that called when you have a jumbo shrimp? Now we can't remember any words. Uh <laughs> oxymoron. Oxymoron. Yeah, thank you. Um yeah, and and it, it's interesting because before plan B, I had kind of always said that Bitcoin's fundamental value increases by a fixed percentage every day just from kind of the, the Lindy effect of it continuing to survive. Um, but there are, in fact, step functions where on having days, the fundamental value of Bitcoin uh, has a, um, ha a non-linear, you know, discontinuous uh, increase. And that, uh, perhaps more than the uh, Lindy effect, contributes to the momentum trading that causes these massive cycles and these parabolic tops and 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 then subsequent you know um corrections and and kind of psychological trauma healing that happens <laughs> in in these uh cycles now because we, we we've seen we see this in other markets right where they they have parabolic tops like this and then a correction well, there's there's one thing I want to tell you that that I think is a little bit different about the bull market that I believe that we have just started to see. Um, and for people that are just getting into this stuff, they're probably like, huh? But um, the thing that I think is very different about this bull market versus the last one was when we, in 2017, one of the reasons that I was so willing to sell my position was because I didn't think we were anywhere close to a point where... Um, 
people were going to, were going to totally just like the whole population was going to come on board. Like I thought we were very far away from that in 2017. I thought we were seeing something that was amazing. I mean, that's when you had the derivatives thing getting turned on and it's just like, you're starting to start to get like financial entrenchment into the space. And so I was like, Hey, I think this thing's going to have a correction. I think it's going to be massive. And I think I'm going to have an opportunity to buy back in after I pay my capital gains at a much better price and still be able to get ahead this next time. Cause I mean, really we're, we are years out from the top on this next bull market. And I think that what's happening in bond markets in particular and in currency markets, you might have a different scenario where the, you know, I'm referring to the plan B, uh, article where the, how he's mapped it out. I, I think I would have a much, much harder time putting in a limit order on how high I think this thing is going. And it's definitely in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. Um, I think it's going to be way harder to put a limit order in on something like that because of all the other things that are going to be at play. And I think there, this is going to be a very dramatic thing in call it two or three years from now. Hook it, it straight in, into my veins, Preston. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I think that in every like uh, Bitcoin bull market, there's this picture that is a graph of the uh, Weimar Republic Reichsmark versus gold, where it's like, that never that hit a top and it never went anywhere else because the Reichsmark, you know, went to zero. And so it's not like there was a, oh, I'm going to sell my gold for some Reichsmark to, you know, buy it back uh, cheaper. Um, but you're right that, and it's funny because when I, when I first got interested in Bitcoin in 2013, I thought that bull market, it was game over that like Bitcoin was taking over over and hyper-Bitcoinization was happening that year, uh, which turned out to be extraordinarily naive um, in the short run, uh, even though I think in the long run, uh, I'll end up getting proven right. But um, so you're, you're hypothesizing that uh, this next cycle, not only, you know, let's put aside the possibility of it even replacing the US dollar completely in this next cycle, but just that we don't know how long it's going to be of a cycle. And so it's going to be much harder to, to call it a top for it well i think this is the consideration is if you're getting into it right now which i'm sure most of your listeners are um the thing is is i'll refer do you guys do editing by the way you we can uh we can people people like the authenticity i just had a little chime that came in there but anyway it, it, people can laugh um <laughs> so uh this is the consideration is what tax bracket are you going to be in if we have a major bull market, right? And, and I'll just tell you, like the I suspect on the, especially on an individual level, maybe not on a corporate level, but on an individual level, you're you're at like 35, 40% kind of tax rate uh, with the gains that you're going to get out of something like this if all this kind of plays out the way that we're talking. So then you have to ask yourself, am I going to get a 40% correction on this thing? You know, the the corrections we've seen in the past. Um, have been well in excess of that, but that's because you're dealing with smaller numbers. And if we look at how the mayor multiple, for example, has, has charted is that the tops are not nearly as abrupt. And I suspect that the downturns aren't going to be nearly as extreme. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what's the probability that I would get something lower than a 40% drop 
what's the probability that I can time the exit and the entry that I, that I, if, if it is, let's just say it's a 50% drop, your ability to time the 50% drop is going to probably give you no advantage over the capital gains that you're going to end up paying. So I, that's why I tell you, and I, and I know we're hypothesizing about a whole lot here, but I think it's important for people to think about it now before they start getting themselves into a situation where they start convincing themselves that they're going to time the, the top of this thing and then get back in and it, they're going to get the, the huge drop that you had in the past and then still pay your taxes and all that kind of stuff. Like you got to think all that stuff through and kind of have a game plan before it's, it's already happening because then it's going to be too emotional. You're going to be way too emotional at that point. Yeah, people are going to be doing panic buying, panic selling, panic everything. Um, and it is it is interesting how uh, how many people you know tell me, uh, oh, had only I sold at you know eighteen thousand or whatever, you know, like the great Preston, uh, how how much like all the nice things I would have, and I could have bought <laughs> bought back, you know, much lower. Um, but in hindsight, you know, like that's that's pure hindsight, and it's like when you're in that moment, like everyone is in that feeling of we don't actually know if this thing's going to go down. Um, and so no one actually, uh, a, a lot of like sort of maximalist types um, are not in that mindset at all. And so um, I do think you're right uh, that you need to think ahead of time, you know, what you actually want out of this whole thing um, so that you don't find yourself panicking. Yeah. And, and I think it's insanely, uh, naive for somebody to think that what I did was like total skill. Like there was, there was a little bit of math that we put on it and then a whole lot of luck that was, was, was there for me to do what I did. Um, and I would tell you that if you think you can just do something like that over again, like I, I tell you, I, I don't think I could do that over again. <laughs> you know, honestly, like it's just, um, you, you've got to be, this is the one thing I've learned in financial markets. You have to be insanely uh, just realistic with what it is that you're capable of doing, because as soon as you aren't, you're just going to get clobbered. You're going to absolutely get clobbered. Well, and the important thing with Bitcoin, and I, I wrote about this in my you know old article, "Everyone's a Scammer." It's like there are only 21 million Bitcoins, and so whenever you make any of these calculations, you have to realize like this this train is going, and maybe it'll slow down a little bit, but there's no you know, final breaks on this thing. Like this is not coming to a full stop. This thing is going. And if you make one wrong step, you know, you might, you know, uh, you know, even just lose, you know, quote unquote, a Bitcoin, but that Bitcoin is a lot in the future. Um, and so <laughs> it's extremely, it's, it's even more risky than, you know, uh, once you've broken out of the uh, USD mentality, like just the, you know, prices and think about the real long term and what the, the future of Bitcoin can mean. I just wish I could have bottled up my emotional feelings when I sold at 18, it came down to 15, then it went to 20. I wish I could have just, you know, given somebody a shot of that who's never been in this space and let them feel what that felt like, because it was, it was insane what I felt like when I saw that happen. Now, luckily it, it all played out, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just something you got to prepare yourself for because right now you think these swings are, are crazy and wild. I mean, it's just like, I, in my opinion, I think this thing's just getting, just getting warmed. If, if this was a baseball game, they're not even through the national anthem for this next bull market. <laughs> and so what do you make of how 
quickly the price went up in this first leg of the really i mean it, the it, the bull market you know it hit a bottom and then it just went vertically up uh, to ten thousand dollars from three five hundred dollars uh, and my read of it was just that there were a lot of people watching and waiting to see a confirmation that the bull market, you know, had started or that the bear market had ended. And then once they saw it, they just all piled in. So I don't agree with that. I think that what you had, in my opinion, I think what you had were a bunch of people who saw it go to, to 20,000, okay, back in 17. And you saw all the news on the Wall Street Journal and everyone's like, what the hell is this Bitcoin thing? And how the hell did it go to 20,000? Like, are these people nuts? Because I think in the typical person's mind, they don't understand the stock to flow. They don't understand the technology of encryption and how it's changing the world and all this stuff. Like, they don't understand any of that. All they know is that there's these crazy people on the internet and they've made up their own currency. Okay. And it's not even real and it's backed by absolutely nothing. And they're trading one of these digital fake coins for $20,000. That's what the typical person is thinking. Hey, guilty as charged. Right. Now that that's how, if you were going to line up a hundred people and put them in a room, I'd tell you 95 of them, maybe even more than 95 of them is that's how they would describe that. Okay. So then when it went down and it was hitting less than 5,000, then it hit 4,000. Then the Wall Street Journal writes their article, their, their perfectly timed article whenever, this is what Pierre was talking about, which I retweeted and I said, I'm feeling pretty bullish about Bitcoin right now because the Wall Street Journal came out with an article right when it was at like $3,600 a coin, $3,600. And it said, this is the death of Bitcoin, right? And so at, now think about that population of, of 95 out of 100 people in the room. What are they thinking? They're thinking, serves them right. Those idiots, they're so dumb. Those, I, how could they not have learned about the tulips? You know, like that's what these people were thinking. Then all of a sudden, you have Facebook. Okay. And what I think you saw in that first bump was all the people front running the news who had an inside scoop at Facebook and in Silicon Valley and whatnot that they're going to launch a coin called Libra. Okay. And, and the, the people who would have that inside information, they have the capital to move the price. Absolutely. You know, they, they've made a lot of like if you look at the shares of Facebook over the past decade, uh, it's uh, ha maybe hasn't outperformed Bitcoin, but it's done pretty well. Absolutely. And so now if you walked into that room of 95 people and and so now the price is coming up and it's coming up to like 7,000 and it's getting bid. And then all the news articles are saying Facebook's coming out with a crypto coin. Facebook's coming out with a crypto coin. The typical person, 95% of those people in that room, they, they do simple deductions in their, in their brain, right? It's just simple psychology. They're saying the smartest programmers on the planet work for Facebook. Okay. They work for Google. They work for Apple. And so now you have this company, Facebook, that has the smartest programmers on the planet, and they're doing that, that Bitcoin thing. Okay. So now a person's saying, they're saying, hold on. They're kind of turning their head to the side and they're saying, there's something to this. There's maybe that whole Bitcoin, maybe I need, what is going on? If, if, if Facebook's doing it, and they're a hundred billion plus kind of company. May, there has to be something to this, and there has to be money to be made that's going on here. 
Okay. So then they get called into Congress. Then you're just getting this constant 24 hour news cycle of crypto, Bitcoin, the, the discussions going wild. And then you're seeing the price go un, in my opinion, uncharacteristically high for where we're at in, in the protocol cycle. Okay of it chewing up fiat, right? It's the monsters there like pulling the, the fiat in, but you're at a you're at the most bearish point in time for that bull run. If you would have had this Libra announcement in 2 years from now, I mean it it would have just gone through the freaking roof. And so what you have in my personal opinion is you have a very uncharacteristic bid on the Bitcoin price. And now that the whole Facebook thing has kind of fallen out of the news and everyone's talking about how it's a disaster and whatnot, I think that you're seeing a correction back down to where Bitcoin probably needs to be priced, which is probably going to be around 7,000 bucks. But I don't know. I think it's going to come down there very momentarily. And then I think it's going to just start clawing its way up. Um, so that's, that's how I'm reading the current situation. I think it's very uncharacteristic. I think it went way higher. In fact, I tweeted literally on the day when the price, and again, I'm just using the, the mayor multiple, right? When it went up to 2.4, which is what we back tested as being the point where you stop buying. It doesn't, we don't say you sell, we say you stop buying at 2.4 because historically, according to back testing, there's no advantage if you are a, I forget how we ran the back test, whether it was on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. But what we did is we went back from the from the beginning of Bitcoin and we said, I'm going to buy it every week or every day. I can't remember how we did it. And if you do that, what at what multiple is it, does it become uh, a disadvantage for you to continue buying at, at that rate? And what we found was anything above a 2.4 the price is, is moving way faster than the, the adoption rate and you're going to get a correction. And because you're going to get a correction because the price is moving faster than the adoption rate, there's really no advantage for you to buy at that high of a multiple. So we go back, the Libra announcement came out. I saw the price go up. It hit 2.4. I sent out a tweet literally almost within the hour saying, hey, this price 14,000 that you're seeing on Bitcoin seems a little high you might want to stop buying it and just wait till you get a better multiple and sure enough it's come back right and you've had better opportunities and i i don't look at it as a timing tool really to be honest with you i look at it as if you're a person who's entering bitcoin for the first time and you're totally fomoing out because 10 of your friends just told you that they had a a 1500% gain in the last 24 hours okay Look, all I'm asking is that you look at the mayor multiple and and go into the position with wide, eyes wide open. And if it's above like a two, you might just have like a painful 30 or 60 days. But if you kind of get past those 30 or 60 or 90 days or whatever, you'll probably be okay. And you'll be able to kind of go with the flow at that point because it's just moving that fast. But yeah. And do you think that having the price spike up so early in the cycle is going to affect the mayor multiple going forward because it's going to move the uh it, it it kind of affects the moving average right yeah i think because because at least the moving average that uh yeah you might see a little bit of that i could i could buy that where maybe maybe it'll be lower than we would have uh, expected uh because of of that but um we'll, we'll see yeah 
Yeah, I think I think that that's a consideration, and I think people need to be aware of that, and I think that they need to be prepared for maybe another thirty days or sixty days of pain. Preston, I know like the the bear multiple uh, was was very popular almost two years ago now, but um, there hasn't been quite as much talk uh, since then, and there might be a lot of new listeners who you know don't know as uh, as much about the bear multiple. Could you kind of give an over overview for them? Well, the reason no one's talking about it is because plan B came out with something that's like way better, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'll just shoot you straight. Like his, his document that he published is way uh, more accurate as far as kind of understanding where you're at in time and space. And more importantly, why? Um, I would tell you that uh, I think the mayor multiple is definitely still relevant, but it's more relevant for um, do I... If I buy something today, is it going to be a, a painful experience in the next 30 to 60 to 90 days? I think that's really kind of how you use the tool. And I think that it helps you. I think it helps you stop buying whenever things are getting really excessive and you just kind of sit on your hands. I think that that's where you can kind of use the tool. Um, but back to your original question, sorry to kind of take it off on a tangent. So how the mayor multiple works is it's just a simple ratio. And I would like to say that I thought of, of doing it this way, but I really got the idea from Trace Mayer. And Trace wrote an article and he just highlighted like eight different dates in time where the price compared to the 200-day moving average was whatever. And, he's, and he was, in the article, he was saying this to try to give people an idea of the range of, of possibilities of where things could go. But I read the article and I was kind of like, Hey, if we would just look at every single day and we'd look at what the multiple was on every single day, and then we would just do a statistics plot and kind of look at the bell curve, we'd have a much better understanding of what normal is and what is completely abnormal or two standard deviations from, from the mean. Right. So I just did that. I plotted it out and I told trace, I said, Hey dude, uh, I don't care if you like this or not, but I'm naming this thing after you, uh, because you're the one that gave me the idea. And he just kind of laughed, but um, so just to kind of put it in really practical terms, let's say that the moving average for the last 200 days is a hundred bucks. Okay. If the price today is $150, then the multiple would be 1.5. And the average for Bitcoin is around 1.4, 1.45 or something like that, just to kind of give people an idea of how it's calculated. So that's it. Um, so we saw it, yeah, go to 2.45 at, at the uh, the recent high, and now it's at 1.5. Um, and then at the bottom of the bear market, it was at 0 0.5. So it's it's definitely uh, still high, but not uh, very high like it, it was. Um, and like it has been, I think it was at 3.5 uh, in December 2017. So... Um, yeah, just to put things into context. So I guess the uh, mirror multiple tells you how painful the next 30, 60, 90 days might be, while the stock to flow tells you how great the next uh, two years are going to be. Yeah, and I think that, you know, and I would, I would love to, to play around with this. And unfortunately, I just don't have the time to, to play around with some of the, the ideas that I come up with. But I would love to mix... Uh, the mayor multiple with plan B's uh, timeline, because whenever I look at plan B's article, he's kind of given you the big, the really big picture, right? And the mayor multiple is giving you more of like the short term impact of kind of like, if you enter a position or you buy something right now, this is, this is what you can expect. So like when 
Trace and I tweeted back in Christmas time frame, Christmas of uh, what would it have been of 18 when the mayor multiple was like at a 0.5, 0.45, somewhere in that range. And we're saying, hey, it's a good time to buy. Um, I think if you could overlay some of those metrics of where the mayor multiple is at at certain phases of plan B's, it would it would be really interesting to see what the results were. So, uh, if I, if I know that he's actually tweeted out some charts and stuff, he he references the two hundred day moving average uh, every once in a while. So I think he might even already be thinking on those terms. Yeah, he might already be thinking in those terms. I guess if if I was going to solve it, what I would do is I'd take his his four year cycle, and I'd probably break it down into like half year uh, blocks. And then what I would do is I would look at the mayor multiple movements in those blocks so that, you know, when you're at the last phase, the FOMO phase, you might have a different characteristics of how the price looks inside of there. Mm -hmm. That's, that would be normal for that block, right? If you break them into like Lego blocks. So I think that that'd be some really interesting research. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this that could quickly bang something out with their code to uh, understand what that is. But I think it. you might find out that there's nothing to be learned there. You might find out that there's a lot to be learned, but I, I think it'd be neat to kind of mix those two ideas together. So I, I recently had dinner with Trace, and uh, he, he did mention that um, he had been playing around with some, some derivatives uh, and, you know, with using signals from the mayor multiple. Do you think that like the the maturing of derivatives on Bitcoin is going to allow for um, people who who have conviction during the cycles to be able to leverage up and be counter more counter cyclical than they were able to with the cash spot market and thus kind of help stabilize the Bitcoin market more than we have historically? I don't know about stabilization, but uh, everything else that you said, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think what you're going to find is that people are in, that are in the know and kind of understand how this works because you haven't seen, I mean, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, you haven't seen anything like this in the history of financial markets. You haven't seen anything perform in a systematic way that is somewhat predictable as far as like what plan, assuming plan B's narrative is true. And I kind of believe that there's, there's a lot of truth to it. So if that's true and you're able to kind of look at things like that and you're dealing with a computer algorithm that is competing against global currencies, I think that you're going to start to see some really, really fascinating things. And a guy like Trace, who who was buying it at a quarter and not just buying it, but like heavily, heavily buying it at a quarter. Um, I mean, a guy like him, if he starts doing derivatives when a mayor multiples at 0.5, I mean, my God, I couldn't even imagine what kind of uh, returns he'd be getting. And we just had the news today that Ledger X is going to have uh, physically settled Bitcoin futures uh, that's going to be available to, to retail investors. So I think it it's going to open that field up quite a bit compared to where it was before. Where, where you're going to have a hard time in derivatives, in my opinion, is getting a, a counterparty especially if you're doing something that's long duration. So like you're not going to find anybody who's going to do a two-year option on Bitcoin. You're going to have no counterparty. You're not going to have anybody that's going to take that that side of that position. And if they do... Not even someone like Peter Schiff. 
Because <laughs> he thinks, oh, if the price goes up, he's still right. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a one hundred thousand uh, dollar option for December twenty twenty that that's trading. It's very illiquid, so you're right that there's not a lot yeah. of volume there. That's going to be the problem. Is it's going to be very illiquid, um, but it's and... collateralized. So um, if you do find someone, then LedgerX will hold that Bitcoin, and presumably you'll you'll be uh, you'll be covered. Well, and I think the the harder challenge is going to be as you get more entrenchment and you get more of the population, like going back to the example in 2017, you you might have had five people out of a hundred that even knew anything about it. I think as you progress in this bull market, those numbers are going to start drastically shifting, and then you're going to have a very hard time finding anybody who's going to be a counterparty to that. Um, all right. So does that mean that the dollar collapses because no one wants to hold it? You know, I I think it's really hard to know which currency is going to break first. And then I think after you have one of the currencies break, I think you're going to have an extremely hard time uh, managing the others. So I think the question really becomes which country's currency is going to break first. I, I think the euro is an absolute disaster. And most of it comes down to where the bond markets are at over in Europe. Um, you know, I, I guess this is a this is a conversation I think would be fun to have. So, um, when people think about hyperinflation, they almost always think about Germany back in the 1920s, right? They they think of the picture of the people with the wheelbarrow pushing all the money down the street, and. I have asked myself for quite some time now, what, because quantitative easing does not make sense, right? None of this, none of these actions make any kind of sense. And I've, I've just go, gone back and back to the same question. And the question is this, what would modern day hyperinflation look like? And would there be a difference? And so asking myself that question, I've, I've come to the conclusion it might be it might be dead wrong, and I'd be really curious to hear people from your audience and what their perspective is. And by the way, I absolutely love when people have the opposite opinion of me. Please send me a tweet on on Twitter. Tell me why you have the opposite opinion because that's how I learn. But um, this is my opinion. I think that what you've seen for the last thirty eight years is a total bid on the bond market, total manipulation in the bond market. And the manipulation has only uh, accelerated after 2008 because you kind of got to this point where you got 0% interest rates, right? So for people to understand what that means, and, and this is where I think you're seeing the inflation, is you're seeing the inflation in the bond market. And so you got to understand how bonds are priced. And I, and I found through the years of teaching finance and, and talking to people that people do not understand how bonds really kind of work. They understand that they're debt instruments, but beyond that, they really don't understand it. And most of the reason why is because to buy tranches of bonds, you're typically dealing with very large amounts of money because your returns aren't all that high after you account for inflation. So let me just explain this to you as simple as I can. So if you had a thousand dollar bond, okay, that was yielding when it was issued, and we're talking about a 30 year bond, okay, if it was issued at 2% for 30 years, that bond goes on the market. And let's say, Pierre, you buy the bond for $1,000, it's yielding 2%, and it's, it's going to last for 30 years. If we warp ourselves in time to next year, 
And through government changes with central banks, they've pushed interest rates lower. Okay. Pierre's bond that was originally a thousand dollars that now has 29 years to maturity. Okay. If interest rate rates went down 1%, his bond is now worth $1,250 on, on the, uh, in the aftermarkets, if he'd go back and sell that thousand dollar bond, he's going to get $1,250 because that's what happens when the price or when the interest rates go down is everything else is repriced to match those new interest rates. So what you saw was a total bid on a bond. Now imagine the, the size of the bond market. Okay. You're talking trillions of trillions. I mean, the, the stock market looks like a pimple compared to it's like a pimple on the back of a monster when you're looking at the size of the bond market. Okay. And I think a lot of people don't understand that either. So if you now imagine how he just got a 25% return on a fixed income bond that was only yielding 2% because the interest rate dropped 1% in a year. Okay. Now things start getting really interesting when you talk about that being trillions of dollars and interest rates are going down the way that they've been going down for 38 years straight, right? Like if we look at the 10-year treasury back in 1981, it was a little over 16%. Today, the 10-year treasury is at 2%. And if you drew a line from 1981 to now, it's a straight line of interest rates going down systematically for 38 years. And so that's what I... I guess from my vantage point, because you're dealing with trillions of dollars and you're not just dealing with trillions of dollars in the U S you're dealing with trillions of dollars globally of debt that has gone down because central banking policy has driven it down. And I think that's where you're seeing inflation. The reason I tell people that you don't see any inflation is because you don't own a tranche of a billion dollar bond fund. But if you, but if you did and you were managing it for the last 38 years, you would absolutely know what inflation looks like because the price just always seems to go up. Like you could have a ham sandwich that could have managed a bond fund for the last 38 years and it would be crushing it, right? That's so where we're at. Is that, is that because when, when Paul Volcker, you know, reestablished dollar monetary policy and the credibility of it in, in 1980 and kind of crushed the, the actual dollar inflation of the seventies. Um, and he raised interest rates to 20%. And now we, we went from 20% to 0% to, you know, negative in some places. Um, and is that just because of kind of a long secular cycle in, in the market? that you know eventually has to find a bottom and then reset and kind of uh mean revert or is there something else going on well what you're in this wasn't a quote from from myself or i didn't say this but i was i was watching ray dalio one time talk about something so people ray dalio runs the biggest hedge fund on the planet i would argue is and this is very controversial for me to say i think he's a better investor than warren buffett um, he blew up early on in his career and developed all this systematic way of investing. But in my opinion, he's a genius. And I heard him one time say that, well, the U.S., we, the, the dollar defaulted back in 71. It's just taken decades for the, the consequences of that to play out. And so 
what he's talking about is we came off the gold standard in 71 and no longer the here in the US. And I'm not an expert when you get into foreign currencies and how they are pegged, but I do know that the Bretton Woods made sure that all the other countries that we made the agreement with were pegging their currency to the dollar and the dollar was pegged to gold. So if we come off that standard, now you have all these countries that are, it's kind of a free for all, right? And so the idea is, well, if I can, uh, if I can outprint the other person, then I can induce and manipulate growth. And so how do you do that? Well, lowering interest rates is a really unique tool for spreading uh, currency throughout the world throughout the world. So I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but I think what it, what it really comes down to is from when we Ray Dalio's words defaulted on the dollar in 71, because we came off the gold standard and you see the, uh, the overshoot that continued to occur because of all the momentum that existed from the adjustment of the, the money multiplier from 1944 until 71. And that's a whole nother discussion. Um, I think that's why you kind of saw things play out the way that they did. And so the way that you do that is you adjust the interest rates lower and it, it creates the environment that we have. And then where it all comes to fruition is when you can't drop interest rates any lower. When you get to zero, um, now people are incentivized to take cash and put it in a safety deposit box because they don't want to give it to the bank and get, you know, if I give you a hundred, I don't want to get 95 back the next year. Well, so let's get into negative interest rates because uh, we are actually seeing, you know, maybe not people, but institutions <laughs> uh, investing in the, in these bonds. I think it's mostly in Europe, it seems like, right? The, um, and Japan, uh, where they have negative interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about negative interest rates, I, you know, I'm not ruling it out that it can't happen. I think that in order for it to happen, you've got to you've got to eliminate real cash. Like you can't have real cash in the system because if it's all digital, and the banks are in cahoots with the governments, and the governments are telling them, "Hey, the interest rate's now going to negative three percent," and you have no control to cash out, you have to go through a bank. That environment can happen. I just don't know how long it can persist. Well, so like you were saying with, with bonds, like the pricing of it, if if people are buying negative interest rate bonds because they think that a central bank is going to buy that bond at an even more negative interest rate and thus at a higher principle, you know, uh, you know, and make a capital gain off of that, then I mean, as 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 Ponzi finance as that is. Uh, that can be a real game that they can play for for quite a while. Well, and and it only works if there's no alternative options. But you know that's why we're here is because we're talking about the alternative op option that's out there. And so it, because you have competition in the marketplace, before it's just all it was currencies controlled by the government. But now you're going back to like the nineteen or I'm sorry the 1800s where privatized money existed which you know, clearly happened in, in the US at least uh, for very long periods of time that you have privatized money. And so uh, you know, like anything, the pendulum swings one way and then it swings back the other way and it just keeps on going. Everything's in this, in this cycle, right? Sometimes the cycles last hundreds of years. Sometimes they last 10 seconds. But 
I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a competitor enter the marketplace saying, uh, money does not have to be controlled by the government. We can have privatized money. And not only can we have privatized money, but it can be a unit of measure that is not adjustable, that is fixed like a ruler. And, um, you know, I mean, do you want to swim in an ocean with 40 foot waves that are, that are, that are all over the place? Or do you want to swim in a nice calm pond that doesn't have a wave? Cause that's the difference between the two currencies. It might, and it doesn't feel like it now. It doesn't feel like it right now. But I think that when you get to a market size of the competing, the competitor, you're going to find that that thing is, is very calm. Well, that's, that's kind of the challenge now is that the, the people who are investing in negative interest bonds, they've got billion dollar portfolios. And so they can't move that into Bitcoin. Uh, so Bitcoin's going to have to become much bigger, much more liquid for it to even be an option for them. So who's the patsy at the table? I always like to ask that question, you know, like when you're there and anytime you do a trade in the markets, you have to ask yourself, am I the smart person or am I the dumb person right now? Because there, there can't be, you know, we both can't be the smart people and we both can't be the dumb person. So which one am I? Am I the patsy at the table? And so I think with some of this stuff, when you look at who's going to just absolutely get wrecked with this. And I'm of the opinion, and I could be dead wrong. Again, tweet at me if you think that this, uh, this narrative is wrong. Um, but I think the patsy at the table are the people that are all issuing the debt. Um, issuing it, not the ones taking it out. And the reason why is because, can you imagine what happened if banks all of a sudden just started saying, hey, uh, we're not going to be issuing any loans in USD anymore. We're going to be issuing it in Bitcoin. I mean, I just cannot imagine a scenario that could be more like just totally ripping everything apart than that. And I'm not saying that I, I want things to fall apart. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying I think that when people start to realize that the inflation rate of that, because think about it, if you're, if you're issuing debt, if you're making a loan to somebody and you're making the loan at 2%, and inflation is 3%. Congratulations, you're you're losing money, right? You're losing money. And so when people start measuring uh their currency against an alternative, all of a sudden things aren't going to be 2% inflation because they're measuring it against a basket of milk and a basket of whatever. They're measuring it against their opportunity cost to own something else that is moving at a speed that is unimaginable that's their now now that's their opportunity cost and dude i mean it's gonna be insane if if this plays out this is gonna be crazy it's gonna be like something we've never seen before yeah and there's quite a few people already using uh bitcoin as their unit of account right as as their opportunity cost for all of their investment and consumption decisions you know, the thing that I found kind of fascinating is it, it seems like there is a, uh, there's a cultural gap, a major cultural gap between what I would describe as my generation and younger and kind of like my, my parents' generation and older. They're looking, they're just, I think they are just writing it off as being just so incomprehensible that it's not possible. And which is a total psychological bias, right? Like you're just, you're, 
you're writing something off because, well, that can't happen because it would be, it would be too disruptive. And if it's something that you can control, I would agree with you. But if it's something that you absolutely cannot control, um, that's, that's a completely different argument. And where I think it even gets more interesting is when you look at it from a competitive standpoint between nations. So if you had lawmakers, and I'm just going to play out a scenario. Let's say lawmakers started this, this uh, front where they're saying, we've got to ban Bitcoin. We've got to ban Bitcoin. We've got to ban crypto, whatever. You're going to have another country that is going to have the exact opposite opinion as that. And then what I think you're going to start to see play out is, and there might be a, a major lag in the speed at which things go. If you'd have a major participant uh, country call it the United States, uh, start putting all these measures in place where you can't participate in crypto markets. That would slow things down, but that wouldn't, in my opinion, it wouldn't stop things. And then what I think you'd see as that time would continue to progress is the first the first adopters, the early adopters are going to have a huge, huge advantage strategically over the rest of the world. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see very smart people that understand this, the, the Mark Andreessen's of the world, right? Those kind of people that have access to decision makers, and they're going to go have these conversations and they're going to say, hey, you can do this, but just realize if you do do this, I think it's going to be extremely bad and uh, put our country in a, a very vulnerable position because you're not allowing things to play out naturally. And I believe those conversations are probably already taking place, um, but I think that that's going to be what's really fascinating as you look at it at, from an adoption rate between countries. Yeah, I, I heard um, Anthony Pompliano making that same point on, on national television. Yes. Uh, and it's just been great to see, of all people, I would not have guessed that it would be uh, Joe on CNBC who would be talking about the stock-to-flow ratio and, and the Bitcoin maximalists. So I think this is, this is a really uh, great point because it brings up another thing that I'm really passionate about. And I'm passionate about network effects, okay? So a lot of people throw around network effects and Bitcoin, and they talk about it, uh, of how it can influence. But I think knowledge, um, and you see, I think, honestly, I think that's the whole reason Trace Mayer does what he does is because he's looking at information flow and knowledge as a network effect. And so when you look at Twitter, it is just so powerful to be able to, like I tweeted out Plan B's, uh, article. And on the tweet, I put Joe, uh, Kiernan from Squawk Box. I, I put him on the message. Well, the thing went out and it got retweeted 300 times. So I'm sure on Joe's feed, he's seeing that article like over and over and over again in his notifications feed. And so surprise, surprise, literally the next day on Squawk Box, and I'm not saying it was because of me, it, I'm sure there was other people that were tweeting stuff at him or whatever. But um, the very next day after that tweet, who's talking about stock to flow on Squawk Box? Okay. Now think about his network effect. If you would plot him down in a network and basically do the Google architecture of like how, how search engine optimization works, how all these things work off of, I mean, you can go get a PhD in just this, this subject matter of network effects. 
you look at Joe Kiernan and how many people he touches and how many people listen to him and how many people hear, heard that narrative. Now, whether they buy it or not, it doesn't matter, but the access. And so people in the Bitcoin space, I would argue, have been very uh, unique, <laughs> combative, and and very uh, kind of like there's a wall around them. Like either you're in the community on Twitter or you aren't. And I think it's what I think people need to do is they need to look at, are there, is there a sports star that likes Bitcoin? Is there a famous musician that likes Bitcoin? Because these people are connected to all these other participants in, in different people that have completely different interests. And it just so happens we do. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I would argue that um, it's, it's not so much that, we we've built a wall it's like people like uh you know russell okung or people like joe uh they 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 join our community essentially by saying something that we agree with and then we retweet them and engage with them and then they see how much engagement they get by saying something that's pro bitcoin and then that just feeds into it like like joe is like pointing at his phone on on you know tv being like look they're liking my tweets like you know he was getting the dopamine hit uh that uh instagram influencers wearing bikinis get no i agree with you guys and i don't want to paint it that we're like closed off or yeah, anything yeah. Like that. i completely agree with what you guys are saying well, i just that, that, I that being love- said i do think we represent like uh what Taleb calls the intolerant minority I mean, that's exactly what you're yeah. describing. And, and yep. it, it it's exactly this, you know, we, we're uh, very extreme when it comes to our um, uh, disagreements with people, but also with our agreements with people. So like if, if anyone comes out and says anything positive about Bitcoin, that person is our new best friend. Um, and if anyone says anything remotely negative about Bitcoin, they are our greatest enemy. Do you know why I'm... I have a lot of confidence in why I think it's going to succeed is because the people who are the most prominent figures in the movement, they only care what's best for the masses opposed to what's best for the individual. Um, I was talking a little bit about Ray Dalio earlier and he wrote a, he wrote a book called principles. And in this book, he, he writes down that that's one of his rules for in general, just life is that, if I'm doing something that is better for the masses opposed to the individual, it's going to be successful. And, um, you know, I look like an, I look at an Adam back, a Nick Zabo, a Tur de Maester. like these people are adamantly opposed to many of these other movements that are very self-righteous for the people that are standing them up. And, uh, I just, I absolutely love it. And, um, my hats off to those people. They have had a tremendous impact on what has happened. You know, I, everyone gives Satoshi the, the, uh, you know, the pat on the back as far as the, the movement. But when you look at what like Adam Back's team at uh, Blockstream's doing with the liquid and all this stuff, I mean, it is just, it is mind blowing how smart these people are. And how they're doing things that are that the interests are aligned for the greater good of the group. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the dichotomy between um, 
the the populism of it right of this is the people's money uh versus you know the corporate money of libra um or kind of the oligarchy money uh, of the dollar um at the same time i think that there's also been uh s some moderation within bitcoin because to me the most populist bitcoiner uh is is roger ver and you know when he's saying like oh babies are dying because you know we're not scaling bitcoin so like there is kind of a a, a dichotomy there where you can go too far in, in that direction um and then another part of it uh is that the like are you in this for like actually putting putting a dent in the world or are you just trying to you know load up and make as much money as you can by doing an ico by kind of engaging in short term uh strategies that you know from a game theory perspective like the first couple or few games that you play you know where where you take the shortcut and and you take the ico or whatever it is the cash grab uh you know that's that's winning but because it's a game that gets played repeatedly, there's diminishing marginal returns. And so like now ICOs, like everyone just instantly associates them as being scams. And if you say you're an ICO advisor, like you might as well just say you're a criminal. So it's funny because during the last bull market, it was, it was the ICO token market, right? You had everyone and their kid sister just copying various blockchains and launching their own coin. And what's so fascinating about it is I believe that this bull market is going to be the bull market of stock to flow. And people are going to realize how insanely vital and how much foresight the programmer in, for Bitcoin had with respect to how important stock to flow was. And so when I look at an ICO, it's a short-term win. You get all the money up front. But then how does the how does it appreciate, especially if it doesn't have an underlying application that serves a purpose for how the currency would be used? Okay. Because that's how I think an ICO would have utility. And we could talk about Mark Zuckerberg and his big blunder, but um it might not be a big blunder. That might be way premature. But um I think that when you look at and Ripple's a perfect example. Ripple had a very high market cap, and now they're looking at this article that came out and they're like, holy crap, like we have no stock to flow. We just have a pre-mined batch of coins that we hope people will just uh, accidentally fall off of Bitcoin and pump our price. They don't have a systematic protocol that is tightening a noose. It's almost like one of those dog collars that, you know, as the dog pulls on it, it just gets tighter and tighter. And that's exactly how Bitcoin operates with its halving function and all these other pre-mined uh, coins that are out there. They don't have that. They, the the, the collars just loose flapping around and they're just hoping it tightens somehow. Yeah, Ripple is, is interesting because they, um, when Libra first came out with their news, they were like, oh no, this is great for us because you know, it, it forced a lot of conversations with partners that we had been negotiating with and blah, blah, blah. And, and like you were saying with Bitcoin, you know, it caused Bitcoin's price to go up. Um, and then Congress starts their hearings and Congress is asking Bitcoin versus shitcoin. Uh, Libra is a shitcoin. You know, Ethereum is a shitcoin. 
is XRP a shitcoin? And now they're they're putting articles in the Wall Street Journal of like, hey Congress, uh, can you be nice to us, please? Because we don't want you know they 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 understand that they are centralized. Like they know better than anyone else that they are a centralized shitcoin, and that if Congress takes action against Ripple, the XRP goes to zero. And so they they understand that they 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 live by the political you know uh, uh, temperament and temperature in Washington D.C. And so now their CEO is on TV saying like XRP is not trying to replace the the U.S. dollar, unlike you know these other currencies like Libra and Bitcoin. It's like all right, then what the hell are you guys trying to do here? Because <laughs> <laughs> you created a new currency. No, it's fascinating. I think, you know, if I was going to uh, talk about, I always like to try to argue the opposite of my opinion as well. So like whenever I look at uh, Ripple, you know, I think it's centralized. I think that the they don't have a, you know, block reward having kind of thing. I mean, they've got all sorts of issues in, in, in my opinion on how it's going to continue to gain value or, or be valued. Um, if I was going to argue for them still having a spot in the marketplace, I think what you're going to find, especially if the price of Bitcoin starts going over prices like 100,000, you're going to see this whole energy argument really kind of take a center stage because you got to remember half of your political base is extremely concerned about the environment, half of them. Okay. So 50% of the people that are out there are saying, we've got to stop this. This is bad for the environment. They're not listening to Trace. And um, Saifedean talk about, you know, and I listened to, to this podcast, it was amazing where Saifedean's talking about how uh, productivity is as a part of the energy discussion and how profound that was. Half of, your half of your population is not listening to that at all. They don't care. They're just saying that's bad. And so the, here comes Ripple. And this is how I foresee this playing out is... Bitcoin goes over 100,000. Every single article that's getting published about Bitcoin is about how it's consuming the, the world's energy and how we're going to have to start harvesting energy from the sun, like with a solar array the size of the planet to you know keep it going and this and that. And then there's going to be Ripple that comes on you know Squawk Box and they're going to say, our protocol only takes up this much energy. And, and that's going to be an argument, right? Like we, we've got to think through how that's going to be received and then how is the market going to react to that? And then, you know, how does it play out? I don't know. Squawk box would be very dangerous to go on though at this point. I would welcome I would, that. <laughs> I would agree with you if Pomp is there. If he's if he's sitting in the seat, I would totally agree with you. Oh, we just need Joe there now. Yeah, <laughs> Pomp and Joe versus Brad Garlinghouse. Uh, oh, perfect. Would be quite a cage match. Um, and now, so let's say the price goes up to a hundred thousand, so it goes up ten x. But let's keep in mind the halving. So Bitcoin's electricity consumption will only go up five x. I still think that you have. I, I mean, you saw that at twenty thousand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you saw those articles. They were coming out strong. And you got to remember the. People... And they're coordinated too. You'll see oh, like yeah. they have the same headlines during the same time. Well, and think about it. How, how do articles, how do publishers think about their articles? They don't think about the content of their articles. They think about can I get somebody to click the headline? Because if I can get somebody to click the headline, then I can run the ad on the, the uh, data that's pushed to that. Uh, browser. 
And all the, I mean, even if a person's there for half a millisecond, they now can collect the, the ad revenue on that page. So they're yeah. just looking at, hey, half the population is concerned about the environment. If I, if I run a title that's really salacious, the person's going to click it and I'm going to get ad revenue. And then they can immediately look at the metrics and then they push it into the top of the headline because it's getting so many clicks. Even better than that, if they make it even more salacious, the other people are going to click it out of anger. Yeah. Yeah. No, so you're, <laughs> I love it, Michael, because you're exactly right. Maybe, maybe your audience from a publisher standpoint isn't 50%, maybe it's 100%. Right. And I mean, this, I, I, I tend to think of the, the media as just a giant gaslighting machine, uh, whether purposefully or not, just because of this effect, because um, then um, people, people see all of these headlines everywhere. And because they're surrounded, it's like an eclipse attack. And uh, they think that like everyone is thinking this and really it was just like one, you know, savvy PR firm was able to uh, craft the right headlines that could drive uh, clickbait. Um, for ads, no doubt. I, I the most egregious uh, recent example of this in my mind is the Covington Catholic boys in Washington D.C., uh, where like the 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 media was able to create generate massive amounts of revenue from this incident, and it doesn't matter what your opinion about it was. Uh, from all angles, uh, they were able to to make lots of money off of it. And now in this case, they are getting sued by, you know, the subject of this uh, for, um, oh, I forget what it was, defamation or whatever. And they're suing for like hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but Bitcoin can't sue these people for defamation. So it, it's uh, true, but we have to look at the other side of that. So on the one hand, Bitcoin cannot sue them to, to you know, for, for saying ridiculous things. However, on the other hand, by putting out these articles, you're committing a giant self-own uh, whereby you're convincing yourself not to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> there, there's that. And all news is good news for Bitcoin. So there's lots of people who see Bitcoin's energy consumption and yeah, they might think like, oh yeah, energy consumption. Like they still drive a car. Like they're not they're 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 not um, hermits who have uh, retreated to the woods. And and they think, huh, Bitcoin's still alive, huh? Like it's it's in fact it's so alive that it's consuming as much electricity as Las Vegas. <laughs> That's really interesting. I'm gonna look into it. <laughs> so I think, I, I think yeah. it's gonna be a major discussion point in the next bull market. I think way more than people are realizing at this point. Yes, of course. I put out my my Green New Deal proposal uh, on Twitter. I'm just waiting for a politician to uh, take it up. And it's basically using um, you know Bitcoin as uh, a a reason for the United States to invest heavily in nuclear technology, which will bring in uh, great clean energy to the country, um, and they can also pay out the mining rewards to American citizens. So this ties in really well with the other narrative that I see from XRP shills, which is that the majority of Bitcoin mining happens in China. And so they'll say, oh, Bitcoin is controlled by Chinese miners. And so if Bitcoin's going to $100,000, then we'll see people say, do we really want the next monetary standard to be controlled by China? You know, I, I'm a huge follower of Warren Buffett. I've studied Buffett for years now. And uh, he has a saying, show me the incentive and I'll show you the action. 
And I think what's fascinating about the discussion around energy is you will not have a higher incentive in the world to make energy more efficient and cleaner um, than uh, Bitcoin, in my personal opinion. It's because incredible. You're going <laughs> to, yeah, you are going to highly, highly, at the highest level, incentivize the world to figure out ways to uh, produce energy in, in ways that they've never done before. Um, and so I think that that's interesting. And I think that for all the, all the articles that you are going to see, I totally believe you're going to see these articles coming out. Hopefully there's some balance to the argument that lays out that, well, if you're incentivizing this industry to become more efficient, um, you got to assume that, that there's going to be that effect that's, that's counterbalancing the growth in energy demand. And, um, you know, it, it's just, it's going to be a point that I think a lot of people need to prepare themselves for as they're sitting on their Bitcoins and, and reading these articles and getting concerned when politicians are talking about it. Yeah. You mentioned Saifedean earlier in his arguments around energy. Um, one of his newsletters, um, was about energy production. And after I read that, I immediately was just thinking about how we're on the precipice of a new industrial revolution, um, because of that fact of being able to, um, harvest energy in ways that we had never been able to before because we have this system of you know uh, uh, transporting the energy as economic value um, rather than having to transport the energy itself um, as a way to sort of bootstrap new energy markets um, and then of course you know just the fact that if there's energy it's because people demand it meaning there's more uh, growth and all of that. And then the fact that uh, energy is at the base of all economic life. It's at the base of life itself. Um, and so when you are having these kinds of gains, so to speak, in um, energy production, um, in terms of the amount, the cleanliness, the efficiency, all of that, that permeates every single aspect of the entire like economy, every single structure of production um, is getting touched by that. And so I, I unironically believe that we will enter a new industrial revolution um, and see economic growth and productivity uh, never experienced by humanity ever. Unfathomable. You know, I like to study various subjects. And so I I really enjoyed studying biology and learning about the brain and just kind of how the body works. And when you think about like all the different organs in your body and how, what is the currency of the, of the body as far as energy goes and it's the ATP cells um, and how it's interchangeable and how the body, if you didn't have something that was a uh, single call it quote unquote currency. Uh, that could be used for all the different organs inside of your body that you, you could never do what the, what the body does. And I just find, I just think that in the grand scheme of things, when you think about how the world as a collective should, should progress, that it's only natural if we assume that progress is inevitable. Um, there's definitely going to be some ups and downs that a global currency would be at the heart of something like that um, in order to ensure that all the quote unquote organs of the world can function in harmony. And uh, so who knows? It, I just, I just find that parallel really quite interesting. Yep. I agree. Um, did we want to take a look at a audience question 
before we sign off. Actually, let me make sure we addressed. Oh, you know what? We didn't address the risks and challenges moving forward. Uh, you mentioned uh, hardware wallet manufacturing, which is a possibly a huge problem. Although I've been hearing more and more about using several different hardware wallet manufacturers using multi-sig together with them so that you can kind of have the, um, is it the greatest common denominator security? <laughs> uh, but yeah. I, I, I just want to, you know. Go ahead. So anytime I, I put on a position, I, I always ask myself, so what are my risks? And if I can't identify risks, uh, I should probably not take the position because <laughs> it probably means I'm the patsy at the table. And so whenever I look at Bitcoin and I say, okay, so how could, how could a government that maybe hates this new global money, internet magic money, um, how could they disrupt it? I don't know that they can stop it, but how could they disrupt it? And I, I think that there's risk in hardware wallets, um, especially let's just take, and I'm just saying this as a scenario, let's say China does not want Bitcoin to succeed. The manufacturing of hard hardware wallets in a very large scale could potentially be a vulnerability to the trust in the system. And so I just, you know, for me, if I'm buying a hardware wallet, I'm absolutely looking at where it's manufactured. I think if you're really kind of nerding out about it, you could get into like the supply chain of the parts that are being built into the hardware. Um, all these companies, all these hardware wallet companies like to, you know, broadcast that it's open system architecture or that it's an open source code, but the code is only one part of it. You've got firm, you could put firmware on this thing that no one would even know about that's, you know, baked into one of the chips. And so, um, are you looking at the circuitry diagrams on, on your hardware wallets when you receive them? And would you even know what to look for? And would it even be accurate if you received it, if you're, if you're baking something like that in there? And I would say no. So um, I would just tell people um, from a risk standpoint, I, I personally look at what hardware wallet, where is it being manufactured? Um, and if it's coming from China, I'm not buying it. Uh, but uh, look into st some of that stuff. Start asking those questions. Let's have a discussion about it. Let's have a plan B like article written about it. There's super smart people in this space. How can we prevent a risk of a country nailing all, all, all of a bunch of hardware wallets and destroying the trust in the system? And I, I still believe it'd be a periodic event, but I think it'd be a painful event for many people. And I don't think it'd be fair for a lot of people. I think so. Um, like, like these, these are definitely risks to to discuss. Um, one thing, probably the the only thing that Amin Sirer ever uh, positively added to Bitcoin was this uh, just phrase of of Bitcoin as a universal bug bounty. And the positive side of everything you're saying is that as these risks are uncovered and thought about, it does you know arm us with the idea of how can we go about fixing it. Um, and so in the long run, I actually remain extremely optimistic about these things. You know, if it means that all of us are going to have to learn how to fabricate our own chips, that sounds actually pretty awesome to me. So, <laughs> so I, I look forward to the future, uh, but you are right that, you know, uh, people might get, get hurt in various ways in the short and medium run. Um, and we, we have to think smart about how to mitigate those risks as we, as we move forward.
I, in, in a, in a world that where Bitcoin has taken off and governments are now competing in order to, you know, acquire coins. I think that that would be probably one of the most regulated things that you could find is the production, the production of hardware wallets, but you're definitely not there right now. Um, I mean, it's the wild, wild west still. And and if people think that they're showing up to this thing late and like hearing stories of Trey's buying at 25 cents or me buying it at 220, I hate to tell you, like you ain't, you ain't missed nothing yet as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I think you're 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 right. That's like an interesting thought about governments. Is once governments themselves are in, invested in Bitcoin, um, a lot of it, it's 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 interesting because I think a lot of attacks that people associate with state level actors um, don't really make as much sense anymore because a lot of those attacks uh, require a sort of non economic incentive. That is, they just want to see Bitcoin die, um, but then there's a class of uh, uh, attacks where um, you, if you were to engage in it, you're putting your own investment at risk. And so I do wonder how that changes the landscape of, of regulation. So if you're able in the future, if you're able to, let's say that they roll out uh, updates to the protocol that allow you to make transactions anonymously, I think that there would be a huge economic incentive for a state actor in order to put bugs in hardware wallets, because then you can actually, through firmware on the hardware that would be sitting off to the side that no one would know about, could be watching that private key. And then all at once, the private key then scrambles the, the addresses. And then all of a sudden, a country is endowed with a huge um, windfall. And I'm describing things that I think are very... Uh, very low probability events, but they're things that I can imagine. So if I can imagine it, there's other people that can definitely imagine it. Yeah. I I think Uh, on the other, yeah, go ahead. Well, so if you go to a gas station, there is like a state authority that is in charge of weights and measures. And so they do inspections of gas pumps to make sure that they're not scamming you by, you know, whatever process. And, and same thing with like, um, you know, if you're if you're importing something, you know, there's there's regulations about uh, quality of products and whatnot um, that kind of goes beyond what we would expect just from trying to prevent common law fraud and uh, tort litigation and like that. And so, like, I do think that there will be like government agencies that to pick a bad example, like the FDA, <laughs> except uh, for hardware wallets, right, where they do you know, electron microscope inspection of uh, imported hardware wallets, or they just make sure that, you know, like, okay, here's a better example. The, you know, kosher slaughtering of animals, uh, you you will have the equivalent of a rabbi uh, in, in, in crypto cypherpunk terms, uh, a, a Peter Todd watching over the process of manufacturing hardware wallets. Yep. No, I, I think it'll get there. I just think that between now and then, people should just be aware of of that potential risk. Something Absolutely. they should look into is uh, is multisig. So there's uh, there's the Cerberus protocol that uh, our friend Neil Woodfine has been working on uh, with Clavestone, and so they that's really a secure Bitcoin storage for businesses, but uh, individuals could use it as well who who want to have uh, use multiple hardware devices. Um, and you know, all of these, like they got to mature and and get better. I agree. Um, 
And then we've seen services like Unchained Capital also come out with multi-sig mm-hmm. products uh, and then Casa as well. Um, where there even, even the Glacier protocol is, is a multi-sig, although that's much, much more hardcore. Yeah, that's that's Trace's favorite though. Once you get the Trace level coin, when you're buying, well, yeah, yeah, when you're buying, you know, nickel and quarter priced uh, bitcoins, you're gonna want the Glacier protocol for sure. And, and then we're seeing like institutional custodians like Fidelity uh, come in, and obviously they're going to uh, put the amount of resources needed to make sure that they don't end up with a massive liability on their balance sheet. <laughs> That's that's not that's not a good um, that's not a good solution from the uh, Bitcoin ethos perspective of not your keys, not your coins. Uh, but I think that with a with an institution, uh, it was never going to be your keys. So it's it's not going to be your coins. It's going to, it's it's an institution's coins. And so it's kind of it's it's it sits in a place where it's not any individual person's money. Uh, it's a group of peoples. And so just by that alone, while well, it makes having a custodian make a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it's, it's also, I mean, just the, the flip side of it is because it's their coins, it's their keys. And so they do need to invest heavily in <laughs> making those keys uh, function exactly how they think that it's going to work. That's kind of what I've always liked about Gemini is that the Winklevoss twins, uh, they are securing a lot of their own Bitcoin. And so they, you know, through the transitive property, uh, are probably securing uh, Gemini's coins pretty well as well. Uh, Not that I'm endorsing anyone like holding coins on Gemini or anything like that, but um, just having, I just mean from the angle of having skin in the game compared to like Brian Armstrong, who just like owns a few crypto kitties on his cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) So Buffett calls that eating his own cooking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, And I found it interesting. I recently found out that when the Winklevoss twins were buying, so was David Marcus, who is now spearleading Libra. And so I think that uh, people might be underestimating how pro-Bitcoin David Marcus is uh, versus, you know, kind of the public statements he makes. You know, I'm, I'm really surprised by the whole Facebook rollout. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'm just surprised that instead of just acquiring, I guess if I was Mark Zuckerberg, and I know Charlie Lee is selling all of his Litecoins or whatever. I just think that you get in a position that the more, I mean, one of the biggest lessons of Bitcoin is that you're completely decentralized and that no one can call you to the carpet. That's the, like, the, if there's a lesson to be learned, like that's the lesson. And I look at Litecoin and I think that they have a little bit of that going on. And so like, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg, I'm just going to start buying all of his or trying to find something that is is decentralized and detached from Facebook as possible so that whenever Congress wants you to come there and testify, you can look at them and say, I don't know, I acquired them on a on a aftermarket, right? Like I, I acquired them from a third party. Like I'm I'm not in charge of the protocol. And then what you do is once you have a treasury of those coins that is a, you know, is hopefully a substantial amount that you have no control over. Um, then you, where I think you add, just, just take things to a whole different level is you start paying your users. 
you make transactions that, so if you want to be an advertiser on Facebook, you, you make your little ad, right? And then you say, you start bidding, you get into what you think the bidding rate is and you'll pay $3 per click or whatever. If the person, and, and you couldn't do it on per clicks, but, but you could do it based off of, uh, um, uh, campaign ads, like for every thousand ads or whatever, for people that are actually using the platform, which you got deep neural nets that could determine that so that somebody just doesn't go out there and start running a bot, basically refreshing pages a million times. But if a person would be using the platform and they'd have advertising, that person gets a very small, not a large, I'm saying like 1% cut of the advertising fees. And what you start doing is you start paying your customers, the people that are using your platform that you're sucking all the data out of, that's giving you all the advantage in the, on the entire planet to maneuver and, and, and move and win at business. And you're also allowing advertisers to have to buy into that coin in order to run advertising, whether they know it or not, they're now engaging in, an, in a market to convert that fiat into whatever coin that platform is using. Let's call it Litecoin. And what you, what you do is you're, you're driving insane utility into the coin that I would argue no one has done with their ICO. And I think that that would just be such an interesting dynamic for, for a company like Facebook to try to employ because the utility, if you can drive just absolute total utility on a coin and you're sitting on a massive treasury of them, okay, and what you're actually entering into the market for people to use is a small portion of that, you are going to drive insane value into the treasury of coins that you're holding on your balance sheet like you have never seen before. And I just think that that's something, I think that's something that you're going to see, but you're probably not going to see it for at least five years because I don't think anyone's going to be able to, I don't, I don't know. I just don't see it happening anytime soon, but I think that you're going to see a lot of companies, especially a lot of tech companies start doing this. Uh, and then people who are giving away all this data are going to be paid for it in a, in a small way. Yeah. We, we, so we've seen that sort of with Brave. And also sort of with Lolly as well, if you kind of think of, of um, their model, their business model of, of giving a cut to the user. Um, and I, I, what do you think about... But they like, have no if, network effect. They have no network Right, effect. yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, so so that, like, that's why they've been, um, you know, I think Lolly's done a lot better than Brave, uh, but Brave, uh, on top of having no network effect, they also created their own token rather than trying to th find something decentralized. Um, but um, what what do you think about the idea that when when David Marcus was in front of Congress, he was kind of drawing the distinguishing line between Calibra, their their U.S. based wallet that is like KYC AML, just like a Coinbase wallet, and the Libra Association, which is this Swiss-based, uh, you know, uh, cabal of people who are creating this asset-backed, hundred percent reserve, quote-unquote, uh, stablecoin. The like, my read on it was that he was just establishing kind of a negotiating position that started with this combo, and that he's just going to retreat from that and say, "All right, we're not going to do the Libra Association." But we're still going to do the Calibra wallet with existing decentralized public blockchains, you know, 
Bitcoin, Ethereum, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, you know, this might be in like two, three, four, five years when Bitcoin has grown significantly in, in liquidity and popularity. Um, that way they avoid, because it seemed like all the problems were coming out of the Libra Association. All of the questions that they were receiving were pushing back on that. Well, I think it's still yet to be known whether this was even a mistake. I think the narrative that we that I've told myself is that it was a mistake, but that's probably a, a very a, a gross uh, psychological bias, to be honest with you. I, I'm probably looking at it completely wrong with respect to how things are going to play out here. Um, but I think that they probably would have had a better um, launch if they would have incorporated a coin that had already been existed for four years that they had no affiliation with. And it's just like, well, I don't know what to tell you. I bought digital tokens, which I'm allowed to do as a corporation. And I have a lot of them. Uh, are you telling me I've got to sell them? Like, what are you telling me? I have no association. I don't have a point man. That's Mr. Libra, right. That, that's going to go there and answer your questions. I think that's where they that where they've kind of gotten themselves into a predicament, um, which has been great for Bitcoin. I'll, I'll tell you, maybe they need to get in some more predicaments. But, um, <laughs> but I think that uh, that's probably where um, I think it was a little bit greedy. You know, I think the approach was a little bit greedy. They wanted all meat on the bone. They didn't want to have uh, an ounce of. But isn't that what you want to do it in the in the opening round of a negotiation? Is that you anchor it where you get everything? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it goes back to, I don't even, I don't think that we have any clue as to how all that's going to play out. I just, I guess all I'm doing is, is just providing a, a counter way of maybe how it could have been done, maybe done better, maybe done worse, who knows. But um, this is, this is becoming very real, especially for companies that are in the digital space that are collecting data. This this is gonna get hot and heavy, man. Yeah, and I, I hope that there's another social network that comes out that really just goes for Bitcoin, um, like Square has with our Cash App. Uh, might be Twitter, we'll see. But um, some some kind of social network that kind of draws a contrast with Libra and says, here's an alternative way of doing it. Um, rather than uh, creating an, a stable coin, would hugely complicated. But anyway, um, yeah. And and then the other thing that really irritated me because this is like something that I've been preaching about since 2005 was them calling Libra a 100% reserve currency uh, when they were investing the entire float into fixed income securities. It's like that's like. Then uh, everyone's like JP Morgan is 100% reserve. If that's the standard we're using, they're they're invested in in mortgages. That's you know like it, it was crazy to me. There's a lot of branding and marketing that goes on with all with all this stuff. I mean it's, yeah. I mean it's crazy. God forbid they should call themselves fractional reserve. I'm glad I'm glad that calling yourself fractional reserve is a swear word, and so you lie about it uh, in front of Congress. But uh, it still drove me nuts, uh, you know, because of my activism on this. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think that anybody who understands why all this is happening uh, has has the exact same opinion as you, 
And I don't think it's going to fly at all as, as things continue to progress, because there's, there's a culture that's built into this, that the, 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 the past of fractional reserve banking is boy, is it coming to a head real fast. Yeah. All right. Do you want to give us any predictions before we uh, sign off until, until our next episode? (laughs) So Ray Dalio says, uh, the people that are making predictions better be ready to eat glass. Um, (laughs) Are you ready to eat glass? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that I, like I was saying earlier, I think that the, the Facebook thing had a huge impact on the price of Bitcoin. I think it helped Bitcoin find a find a floor um, for where it's at. I also think that the block uh, having uh, the block reward having that's coming up next summer is obviously helping drive that floor at the same time for people that are in the know um, and the people that obviously have a lot of capital to put into the market. So I in the interim, and let me just say the date here: it's thirty one July. I'm kind of expecting a a uh, the market to continue to have a little bit of a correction here for maybe in the next 15 to 30 days. Um, where it goes, maybe 7,000, uh, 8,000, somewhere in that range. Could it go lower? Sure. Um, but I don't think that that's going to last very long. I think that you're going to see it consolidate pretty quickly. Um, and I think that when it does, it's probably going to be the best buying opportunity that you have between now and the rest of your life. And, um, you know, where it goes, I, I don't know. I, I think that, I think it's going to be a wild ride. I think, cause you're really going to see it get into the political realm a lot. And that's going to spook a lot of people when they're hearing different politicians say things. And, um, I just think there's, it's going to be a very volatile ride and, um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun time to, uh, be participating in these markets. And, uh, I'm excited. I can't wait. I can't wait. Uh, on the note of politicians, uh, Brad Sherman, you know, when he was coming out and, and saying negative things about Bitcoin, I, so I have a new policy, which, uh, you know, in today's outrage culture, it's very popular to call for someone to get fired if they say something that you disagree with. And, (laughs) I'm generally opposed to that if we're talking about someone who has a non-parasitic job, you know, where like this person is a, you know, a software developer or a carpenter or a nail salon worker. Okay. Those, I, I would never call for someone like that to be fired because they're stating an opinion that I disagree with. If they are a politician or a public servant, then my immediate reaction is going to be to ask them to resign because... I, I I now have a zero tolerance policy for it, and the the no coiners, if they're going to say things that are antithetical to American values and to human rights, then I'm just going to ask them to resign because it's unacceptable in 2019 that, that they're saying that stuff. But if you pay their income, yeah, you pay their paycheck. Yeah, I pay know? their paycheck. I'm their employer. Yeah. So reminds me of the old uh, uh, George Carlin joke where he's like, you know, he gets pulled over by a cop and the cop comes over and is like, you're a public servant. Get me a glass of water. <laughs> it's like you have you have no business, uh, you know, taking my money and then telling me that, uh, you know, Bitcoin is bad. 
and then these guys like Mnuchin, who has like an offshore account with hundred million dollars, like give me a break. Like he and he's telling me that the dollar is never used for money laundering. Um, so they 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 are making themselves out to be clowns. It's not like I have to like put any effort into it. Um, yeah, I have I have no opinions on politicians. That's my rule. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. Totally fair. Um, so I, yeah, I don't want to get, get anyone in trouble here. Um, so uh, yeah, let's 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 leave it at that. Uh, and yeah, when when it when Bitcoin does get more involved in politics, uh, I'll be very vocal about it, as as I always have been on on Twitter. There will uh, be a lot of resignations. Yeah, there's there's well Believe a lot me. of calls for resignations. <laughs> I don't know that anyone's gonna follow. I had quite a few responses from people being like. What, you really think he's going to resign because you're asking him to? It's like, no, come on, that's that's not the point. I'm just, it's it's about the outrage culture. Come on, <laughs> get with it. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I my prediction is that Preston, we're finally going to meet in person uh, this year. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely, I'd love that. This must happen. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, I'd we'll, love it. We'll, we'll have a steak dinner, uh, and absolutely, and it'll be absolutely, we'll have a steak dinner. All right. Thanks for coming on, Preston. Uh, we'll we'll see you uh, again soon. I, I hope. Um, probably. I, I bet you you'll be back on when the price is around like sixteen thousand. <laughs> I'd I'd be honored anytime, guys. Uh, awesome. I love chatting and I love following your Twitter feeds and I love the back and forth. So uh, it's been a pleasure. It's always fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Have a great night. You too. What do you think? of the saying you get more bees with honey they actually asked Leif this too but he's not here you get more bees with honey I always I always actually heard you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar but it's the same idea and it, it, it's something I I agree with I mean obviously this comes down to the R word relationships and always what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build the relationships. so I'm gonna put out the honey, you know. I'm gonna put out the honey. Mm-hmm. The carrot is 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 preferable to the stick. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, which is another way of saying it. The reward, the good stuff, the so 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 yeah, totally. That that absolutely works better. Um, now you can give people too much honey, and now they get type two diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> they get lazy, they get out of shape, and they don't work anymore, right? So you can't, you got to, that's that's the that's the dichotomy that you need to balance as a leader. Not being too hard, but not being too soft, not being too aggressive, but being aggressive enough. That's the dichotomy. But the, the bottom line is you need to treat people well. That's what you need to do. You need to not spoil them, but give them respect, and build the relationships. And if you make that your goal, when I work with all these different companies, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always saying, listen, make your goal with this person that you're having a problem with, make your goal to build a relationship. That Make that your goal. Mm-hmm. When they say something negative, say something positive. Yep. When they want to blame something on you, say, yeah, you're right, it's my fault. Build a relationship with the person. That's going to strengthen the team. It's going to be thousand times infinitely better than having an antagonistic relationship with somebody. Mm. Yep, couldn't so, agree with that one. Uh, and also, you know, when you're leading with vinegar, when you're leading with fear, 
mm-hmm. and you're leading with you're you're beating people with a stick that does not work out good in the long run do you have to have consequences sometimes yeah but the team that is following somebody because they want to do their best for that leader right. is going to beat the team that is doing things only because they're scared of the leader. Right. Yeah. They If they're trying to avoid the stick, that's going to be where they operate in. They're going to operate enough to avoid the stick. Exactly. Because really, that's the goal, to avoid the stick. Yep. There's no honey. They're not going to really. go above and beyond. Yeah. I think he said something very wise in uh, Office Space. What does he say in he Office said Space? He said he was in his little review. He got hypnotized. Did you watch Office Space? I've watched it a million yeah. times. So so he gets hypnotized, all right? So now he tells the truth, or he doesn't care, you know, about things. So he's like, he's real open and honest. He goes in, into his little review, which is supposed to be this kind of tense thing. And they say, um, like, what's up? You know, some I don't know, they ask him some stuff. And he's like, it's a, it's a problem of motivation. Like, we're, you know, we're not, if I get, you know, all this, so he's explaining it to him and then he's like, okay, if I'm, if I'm scared of, you know, whatever, this punishment from my boss or whatever, no, I'm just going to work hard enough not to get fired. And, but that's true though. It's true. absolutely true. So yeah, like these kids who only get scolded, you know, mm-hmm. they don't get like compassion and, and compliment and, and support, you know, they mm-hmm. only get scolded. A lot of times, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but a lot of times they're just going to do the minimum. And clearly, to if you not go get scolded too far in the other direction, where they get all spoiled. you get is spoiled. Yep. you're too far in the other. Yeah, and the dangerous part about getting giving too like going too far in the other direction, how you put it, is you don't prepare them. Like they they yeah, wind yeah. up when they're on their own, like they're not prepared for not like prepared like, for like the, the tough parts. Life. Yeah, the, the, yeah, and there's a lot of good parts in life, man. But those tough parts, they're there too. So if you're not prepared for them, you're gonna get jacked, for lack of a better term. I think that's the correct term, actually. 